Father Michael has prepared extensively for this with uh, uh, much reading of the Church Fathers and of Scripture, and he has some wonderful things that he would like to share with us. What I would ask for this final session is that we save the questions till the end. So if you need paper and pen or anything to write your questions down, let me know. But we'll listen to everything he has to offer, and then we'll do the questions at the very end, okay? Thank you very much. Father Michael. Thank you, Father Matthew. Thank you for a wonderful lunch. Um, wonderful questions last session. Uh, but it kept me from getting to the end of this section, so, but you know, this is, this is fine. Uh, we will try to cover uh, what's important, and uh, maybe I'll go through this quickly, but I told you that we'd, we would talk about the passions, uh, because we've been, we've talked We've, we've sort of skimmed over the passions. We've talked about it, but let's, let's focus in a little bit and talk about the passions as they relate to temptation and sin. So I call the passions the raw material for temptation. And I begin by noting that the devil is a creature. The devil is a creature. He's not God. He doesn't have the power to create something out of nothing. Rather, it's a dogma of the church that God created the world out of nothing. So, but the devil didn't do that. The devil distorts things. Um, the devil created sin, but he didn't create sin out of nothing. Um, actually, sin actually doesn't have an existence, a true existence. But we can't get into that right now. The devil's job is to create sin, but he, cre he cannot create something out of nothing. He can't create sin out of nothing. In order to tempt us, he needs something to work with. He needs some raw materials for sin. And that something is our passions. So, what are the passions? The fathers tell us that the passions are energies of the soul, natural energies of the soul, that have been misdirected and distorted in some way. <clears throat> for instance, God gave us the ability to be angry for a purpose, one purpose really only, and that is to say no to sin, to say no to evil, and to hate our own sins. Not to loathe ourselves, but to hate our sins. But instead, we use anger to hurt others, to get the best of others, to avoid looking at our sins, and to focus on those of others. Anger, like all the passions, is like straw or hay, waiting to be set afire. 
if the passion of anger is still in us, the devil seeks to provoke that passion with a thought, with a memory, um, with words or behaviors of others. So, it's easy to, to start a fire with straw, right? In the old days, they used the flint rocks. Um, and the spark would hit the straw and it would catch fire. Um, <clears throat> but we can, we can also weaken the passions by uh, dousing them with the water of grace. And therefore, that passion will not be able to, to be set ablaze. Um, the devil relies on our passions to produce sin. This is what St. Peter of Damascus says. He says, For the devil is in the habit of promoting in the soul whatever he sees is in accordance with the soul's own disposition. Quite simply, he inflames in the soul whatever material he finds there already so as to do as much harm as he can, even though in itself the thing may be good and acceptable to God, provided that it is used with due restraint. So, of course, eating food is not bad, but overeating and eating sumptuously is, is gluttony. <clears throat> In the life of Saint Anthony the Great, we see that the devil attacked him by transforming himself into the images of animals, ferocious animals. Why? Because Saint Anthony had become free from the passions and there was nothing in him that the evil one could use to attack him from the inside. So he could only attack him from the outside, eventually. And he turned, you know, himself into wild animals in the hopes that he would scare, scare him and thus kind of capture, capture him. Well, if that's the case for St. Anthony, much more for the Lord Jesus. After his baptism, he went into the wilderness. He fasted and prayed for 40 days, which is an image of Great Lent. But the devil had nothing in Christ to tempt him. I mean, so it's a dogma of our church that the Lord, Jesus, he had no passions. Now, if he had no passions, how is he a human being? Well, the answer is simple. The fathers tell us that real human beings don't have passions. The passions are not, do not make us human beings. They make us less than human. Because Adam and Eve were not created with passions. They were created with their, their human energies directed toward God. Remember, the passions are distorted and dispersed energies, mis misdirected energies. <clears throat> 
So the Lord didn't have those misdirected energies. His energies were in perfect balance in communion with his Father. That is his human energies. So the best the devil could do was to play on Jesus' hunger, which, by the way, the Lord allowed himself to feel. The Lord didn't even have to feel hunger. He willed to feel hunger. This is what the church tells us. So he tells him, if you are truly the Christ, turn these stones into bread. It's as if the Lord had to give the devil an opportunity by making himself hungry. The Lord, like I said, had no passions. He certainly had no memories of sin. So the devil could only tempt him in an external way by showing him movies. Remember, he took him, well, either movies or he showed him, you know, the landscape, the landscape in front of him. Now, what is the remedy or the medicine needed to combat sin that has us in its grip? The Lord gives us the answer. He says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. That's an odd saying. What is, what is the Lord saying there? The kingdom of heaven, until St. John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. What does that mean? The Holy Fathers have always interpreted this passage as speaking to the need for us to be forceful in our fight for the kingdom of God and against the devil and our own passions. If we're going to fight our passions and temptation, we, we will need a spiritual violence, if you will, a spiritual energy referred to by the Lord in this passage. Without a strong and healthy anger toward evil, we're left as victims to the whims of the demons and our own passions. If you wanted a reason to be angry, I'm giving it to you. It's the only good reason to be angry. To be angry so that you create an energy, a zeal that wants to get rid of your sins. That's the place for anger. That's a healthy, God-created anger. To be able to say no to have to have a a resolute desire to get rid of sin when when someone asked saint seraphim of serov why he said they said why in our day are there so few saints and saint seraphim said because people don't have a firm resolution to to give up their sin. 
That's it. That's it. <clears throat> so, um, St. Gregory of Nyssa mentions a pure anger that was created in us by God. And you can think of St. John the Baptist. Think of St. John the Baptist, your patron. He had a fire, right? He had a fire for the truth, which led him to have a desire to fight against evil. His fire for truth created his desire to do away with evil. Fire and desire. There is righteous indignation. St. John the Baptist had this. Father Hopko said, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, but you don't have it. <laughs> so, in other words, we have to be, we shouldn't assume that we have any righteous indignation. When we get angry, we should say, this is probably coming from sin somewhere. So, at least for me. Um, but when, when our anger is purified and directed properly, it's, it's a force against sin. It's a firm boundary. We talk about boundaries in our culture today. This, this kind of anger is a boundary that says, no sin is crossing here. It's, now this isn't directed toward other people, toward judgment. But, it, but it's a kind of intolerance for sin and unwillingness to compromise with sin in ourself, in ourself. So this is the kind of, God gave us this energy and we'll, in some of us, this energy has not been nurtured. And so we have a real passivity and we have to be careful. We have to be careful of that because I know in some ways masculinity has been um, demonized. But remember in the hymns of the in the hymns of the church, when it talks about this, the women saints, particularly the women monastics, oftentimes it'll say she had a manly courage. So we need this manliness in, in the correct sense of the term. Um, there's a story about Saint Martinian who was tempted by a woman a seductress, seductress. He was a monastic, and and she dressed as a regular lady, coming to his cell in a rainstorm to get out of the rain. Normally, he wouldn't let a woman in, but because of the rainstorm, he let her in. Well, she tried to seduce him. What did he do <clears throat> to fight off this temptation? He put his feet in the fire. He put his foot in the fire. Um, so, well, Jesus said it's better to 
It's better to be in the kingdom without one, your right hand, rather than to be in hell with two hands. So anyway, this is just an illustration of, I'm not suggesting anyone disfigure themselves. Let me just make a clear statement about that before I get misinterpreted. But, and you know, I forget which book it's in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the Silver Chair. One of the characters, in order, he was being put in a stupor by the White Witch. And he put his hand in the fire to bring him back to reality. Okay. You know, you wonder if uh, C.S. Lewis knew about St. Martinian. So anyway, as we conclude then with the third stage, which is ascent, um, in the story of the barking dog, we can identify a moment where I assented to this temptation. If the dog barking is analogous to an evil provocation presented by the devil, then the ascent occurred when the passions of fear and cowardice were inflamed within me. Remember, cowardice is a sin. It's the opposite of this kind of anger, which is a courageous thing, which says, no, I will follow God no matter what. And cowardice turns us away from God. Oh, you don't like that I'm a Christian? Okay, I'll, I'll change. I'll sit in the corner and I'll compromise. <clears throat> so the passion of fear was great enough to produce, to produce an image in my imagination one that was much more fierce than the reality of the animal itself. What was it that made me turn around and face the dog? Do you remember? Anger. It was a sense of anger toward my cowardice, cowardiceness. And I hope it was a belief that God would protect me. So this was my insensitive power. We're going to talk about the different powers of the soul, so remember this word. This was my insensitive power clicking in. I was determined to face my adversary and fight to the end. Okay, quickly, the last stage of temptation, which we'll call captivity or passion. So, it's it's just what it sounds like. At this point of temptation, we are held captive to a particular passion or sin. The sin has become habitual, a habit. At this stage, the sin lurks in our heart as a continual and active force. And it doesn't take much to incite it. According to St. Peter of Damascus, in captivity, quote, the heart is induced forcibly and unwillingly to put the thought into effect. Unwillingly. We don't even want to sin. Remember what St. Paul said, that which I do not want, I do. 
By the way, I always that always bothers me because it's often used as if St. Paul was in captivity. St. Paul was actually, he was... Um, he was speaking, number one, in humility. He wasn't speaking about his own current experience. He was speaking about the general experience of the fallen man, where he does what he does not want to do, and that which he wants to do, he does not do. Um, it's, maybe it's my personal opinion. I think it's true. I don't think St. Paul was in that condition. Um, so how do we understand this language to be induced forcibly and unwillingly to sin? We, we could put this into our modern language by using the word addiction. The last stage of temptation, captivity or passion, is similar to the condition of addiction. Think of an alcoholic. When he sees the trouble his addiction causes, he doesn't want to drink. He feels terrible. He tries to make up for it. He'll, he promises he'll never do it again. And then he does it again. In some sense, the passion has overtaken his free will. His ability to choose. His behavior has become compulsive due to the strength of the passion. St. John of Damascus uses this word compulsion when describing captivity. He says, captivity is the forcible and compulsive abduction of the heart already dominated by prepossession and long habit. So, clearly to be in the stage of captivity means that we don't just think about sin, but we activate it. Or in our modern language, we act out. We act out. The passion has overtaken us. While all of this is very serious and sobering, it does not mean that we are without help or hope. Because one is captive now does not mean that he cannot be set free. Although it may take some great effort and time, we can overcome any sin by God's grace. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again. We are not mere victims to sin, particularly if we have the grace of baptism, the medicine of confession, and a spiritual father who loves us, and the Holy Eucharist. So that concludes <clears throat> um, the description of the stages of sin. So now we're going to move on to hopefully a little bit more about how we can be healed. And this is going to require us then to um, understand the healing, or excuse me, to understand the the powers of the soul. If we can understand the powers of the soul, it'll lead us to understand how we can overcome certain sins. And so we're, we're talking about repentance and the healing of the soul's powers. So let's just begin with mentioning the heart in the Orthodox understanding. Uh, 
According to St. Macarius of Egypt, the heart governs the whole organism. That is, the whole human organism. And he says, when grace occupies all the divisions of the heart, it rules over all mem- thoughts and members. <clears throat> so, I've talked a little bit about the heart. Whatever the heart, whatever the condition of the heart, it it creates thoughts. It creates our spiritual condition. It creates our behavior. The heart is called by the fathers the essence of the soul. The essence of the soul. It's the spiritual center of man, where our real self is. The heart is where the image of God resides and where Christ comes personally to reside at baptism. All of the soul's powers are centered in the heart, or they they flow from and back to the heart. The news, we've talked a little bit about the news. The news is called the energy of the heart. <clears throat> or the eye of the soul. It, it naturally belongs in the heart. The noose is supposed to be in the heart. In a, in a spiritually healthy person. The noose is the faculty in man that can comprehend, that can, excuse me, apprehend God directly, that can see God and hear his voice. It is the antenna that can pick up God's signal. In the old days, we had antennas on our houses so that we could see the television, we could get a clear picture on the television, or sometimes the antenna was on the television. I remember when we had a black and white um, television, and sometimes it was, the picture just just wasn't clear. Sometimes we tried putting aluminum foil on it, remember? But now everything's digital, so in the old days, the uh, analog radio, remember you used to turn the dial, and in between the stations you would get static. And then you'd finally, you'd, it would be tough sometimes to get a station, but you'd have to get that dial tuned in right into the station. Then you could hear the signal, you could hear what was going on. The, um, the noose is like that with God. It has to be tuned. It has to be in the, uh, using, having the same signal as the divine. <clears throat> we can also say that the noose is our spiritual attention. So before sin, Adam and Eve were pure in heart and illumined by God's grace. But after the fall, the sinful passions came to dwell in their hearts and pushed grace out. The noose became darkened. 
this is the definition according to the Orthodox Church of the fall, the fallen condition. The noose, the eye of the soul, became darkened and was now unable to enjoy the vision, <clears throat> excuse me, to enjoy the vision of God in the heart. And because of that, it had to find something to pay attention to. And so it became preoccupied with seeking pleasure through material things instead of finding spiritual pleasure in things it was looking for pleasure as an end in itself in things in the fallen man I said this before the noose is like a dog in a butcher's shop chasing after everything in order to be healed, the heart must be purified of the passions and the noose must return permanently to the heart and abide there, communing with God. When this occurs, all of the powers of the soul are in harmony with God's will as they were created to be. St. Anthony the Great said, when the noose is in the heart, such as it should be according to its nature, then the whole of the soul is one virtue. Everything, everything is like the way it was meant to be. It's in perfect balance and wholeness. Okay, so we have three According to the fathers, we have three powers of the soul. Sometimes they call it three aspects of the soul. And St. Maximus, confess, the confessor, sums this up. He says there are three powers of the soul. The knowing, the excitable, and the desiring. He says, by the knowing power, we seek to understand what is good. By the desiring power, we desire the good we have understood. And by the excitable power, we strive and fight for it. We're back to anger with the fighting. Each of these powers of the soul, though, have been corrupted by sin, and they're in need of healing. The heart is the center and the summation of these three faculties. If we wish to purify the heart, and thus get rid of the passions, the three powers must be brought back to their God-given purpose and harmony. So we begin with the, the knowing power. So this is also called the noetic power. Sometimes it's translated, actually most times it's translated as intellectual. Intellectual or intelligence. This can be super misleading. It's really coming from the word noose and it's, it relates to our ability to know God and to apprehend God. Not though 
the reasoning power. This is not the reasoning power. We don't know God by reasoning about him. We know God by experiencing him. So, the noetic faculty. This is the ability to know God and to understand truth by direct apprehension directly to the news, like the antenna picks up the signal. In the sinful condition, this faculty seeks knowledge apart from God. Why did Eve eat the fruit? Because the devil told her it would give her knowledge. It would give her the knowledge to be able to be like God, that would make her like God. This, so, uh, in the sinful condition, we seek to replace God with the encounter with God, with human reasoning. This is what happens, right? Atheists, how do they come to the conclusion that God does not exist? By their intelligence. And they decide they're smarter than anyone else and they're smarter than God. And they have figured it out. He doesn't exist. Adam and Eve sought to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as I said, as a way of becoming like God. Some of the church fathers equate the following, the fallen condition of this noetic faculty with pride, placing one's own knowledge above God. So, in the noetic, the noetic faculty is given to us to know God, and in the fallen condition, um, it becomes pride, knowledge for its own sake, knowledge that does not lead to God. <clears throat> Next we have the desiring faculty. This one is pretty obvious. It's also called the appetitive or you could say appetitive power of the soul. Appetitive, appetitive, our appetite. Desiring means our desire. The appetitive power is the power of wanting, of yearning, of hungering, of desiring. It's to be used as a means for joining oneself to God, as desiring communion with Him. In the sinful state, man places his, his desire for God inappropriately into other desires. Instead of God, man desires power, admiration, importance, possession, comforts, etc. Genesis records that the fruit was, quote, pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. So, this is the, we can call it the hungering, the hungering power of the soul. 
And in the sinful condition, this is going to be something like idolatry. This is, this is making one's own desires our, your God, making our, our desires our God. Self-centeredness, idolatry, worshiping ourself, worshiping our own desires. Because our desire, our desire becomes what we want to fulfill. Not God's will, but my will. Then we have the insensitive power. Does this have to do with incense? Not incense. It's also called the irascible power or the excitable. The excitable faculty. And we, we talked about this. This is, goes back to the anger. The insensitive power was given by God to be used to repel evil and as anger toward our own sins and to be energized to pursue God's will in the face of temptation. The ability to say no to sin. So, have you ever been incensed? This is the insensitive power. Just incensed by my sin. In the sinful condition, the insensitive power of the soul becomes anger or wrath against others, or as zeal for sin, the zeal for sin instead of God, falsehood rather than truth, evil rather than good. This excitable power results in self-love, an overriding desire to please oneself. of the soul, how are they healed? Can we quickly we see the positive things of the first two? What's the positive side of the insensitive the, the sin? Zeal. Zeal for God, basically, is the positive aspect of the insensitive faculty. So, in general, the noetic faculty, pride, is healed with humility, self-knowledge, and knowledge of God. So, submission to Christ and His Church, considering oneself lower than the others, putting aside one's own thoughts and opinions and understanding. 
times. It's not putting aside the truth, but you understand what I'm saying. This is just in general now. In general, the desiring faculty is healed by self-denial. Because we desire everything more everything else more than God. So what are we gonna have to do? We're gonna have to we're gonna have to deny ourselves. The Lord said, if you wish to follow me, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So it's healed by self-denial, contrition, ascetical effort, and sacrificial love. We have to have confession, complete honesty and transparency, no secrets, accountability, prayer, tears. This is what overcomes like all of the desire that is directed somewhere else besides God. And then finally, the insensitive power, our, our sort of misdirected anger is healed by love and kindness. Love for God and for neighbor. Gentleness, forgiveness, patience, kindness, gentleness, praying for others, not judging, excusing others' sins. Okay? So that makes sense. So I have a I have a handout for you. And we're kind of gonna do like a worksheet. Or we're gonna do like a practical if somebody could help pass these out. So, in trying to discern the inclinations and temptations of your soul, it may be useful to use the exercise on this handout. I should note that most of us struggle primarily, our biggest struggle is probably primarily with sins that pertain to one particular power of the soul. For instance, some people have their greatest struggle with physical lust. Um, and this would be this would be related to the desiring faculty of the soul. It's a it's a misdirection, a distortion of the desiring faculty. And it results in sort of making ourself to be our God. <clears throat> For other people, they have difficulty with the insensitive power 
And so they get, they're getting angry at everybody. And they're bitter and they're resentful. Uh, for others, it's, they just can't submit themselves. They, they're, they're prideful and they can't seem to kind of submit their will to God or to others. They have to have their way and they know best and they're in charge and they're in control. And this is a distortion of the noetic faculty, the knowing faculty. Um, so for each, let me look at this handout. I, I don't have a handout. Uh-oh. Sorry. What does this say? Okay, so can give it to them. For each particular sin that we can come up with, we, we can ask some questions. We can say, what is the corresponding um, power of the soul? And how will you nurture this power of the soul toward virtue? How will you practice the opposite virtue? So, I haven't mentioned this, but typically the way the fathers give us to combat a sin or a vice is to use the opposite virtue for that vice or sin. So if I am struggling with unforgiveness, with unforgiveness, I have to start practicing forgiveness. I have to start um, practicing letting go of what others have done to me, not remembering wrongs, because the fathers say the remembrance of wrongs is a very heavy sin for us. So what we want to do is let's just go through this um, exercise and let's pick a sin, any sin. I will start and let's go back to cowardice. You're probably going to be good with this one because we talked about this. Which power of the soul does cowardice relate to? Who said the third one? Okay, yes, it relates to the insensive power. Why does it relate to the insensive power? Well, yeah, because we're afraid. We're afraid to do the right thing. So it's cowardice. Um, and so how are we going to nurture this insensitive power? Or, yeah, how are we going to nurture this insensitive power toward virtue? 
how are we going to use now our insensitive power? Okay. Okay, we have to we have to develop trust in God that he's going to take care of us if we actually like do the right thing. All right. So it's like the wizard of oz, really. We we have to develop courage. Was it the uh, scarecrow? No, the lion. I'm from Kansas. Um, the scarecrow or the lion needed courage. He was a wimp. He was he was a coward. So the lion needed courage. So we're going to nurture uh, a more courageousness in ourselves. We're going to try to nurture and we really might, some people have to develop a level of, in the beginning, anger. Because they're so passive, they, they just let everybody and everything walk all over them. And they don't know how to say no. And they don't know how to, you know, be upset. They don't, they don't, they have an under, underdeveloped sense of strength. You know, we need strength in this life. We need courage. We need boldness if we're going to follow Christ. I mean, if you're really going to follow Christ, are you, can you be a wimp? There's no way. Was St. Paul a wimp? Was St. Peter a wimp? No way. Um, not with what they went through. I mean, St. Paul was shipwrecked and he was, he received the 40 lashes less one, how many times? Three times. After the first lash, you know, I'd be like, okay, I quit. You win. So we have to develop courage if we're a coward or if we have cowardice. And then, then I ask, how will you practice the opposite virtue? The opposite virtue of cowardice is bravery. Bravery. Okay, so I think we've kind of said we have to uh, we have to start standing up and saying, no, I won't. I won't just go with the flow. Right? So, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. And then he says, you have to take up your cross. So, denying yourself means you have to put your desire, uh, you have to leave your desire behind. Because you have to deny, deny what you think you really want. And then you have to take up your cross. And to take up your cross means that you have to accept difficulty and suffering and persecution 
and anything like that. And you can only do that if you have zeal, if you have courage, right? And follow me. So I almost think it really relates to the three powers of the soul. If you would follow me, you must deny yourself. That means that relates to the desiring faculty. Take up your cross. That relates to the insensitive power. And then follow me. The reason you're going you're gonna to follow him because you're going to want to know him. And so it relates to the noetic or the knowing um, faculty. Let's pick another sin and go through that. Who has a good sin? Just not something you're doing, but jealousy. Okay, good. Jealousy. What does what what power of the soul does jealousy relate to? Desiring. Good. Because I desire my neighbor's boat or car or good looks or something. And how are we going to um, nurture the power, uh, the desiring power toward virtue? Excuse me? Gratitude. Ooh, gratitude. That's nice. Gratitude. Contentment. Lord, I desire you. I desire to have you in my life. Even if I don't have what my neighbor has. And I'm going to be happy with what I have. And then... How will you practice the opposite virtue? How will you practice um, being content? Being generous. Being generous. Good. Humility. What else did I hear? Giving thanks. Gratitude. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, how can we actually practice those things? Give me, give me a practical, like action or scenario. Go ahead. Say thank you to somebody for something that happens. Uh, something about you. Giving thanks to God for that. Giving thanks for something that's happened to you or how about being happy for the neighbor who has a boat how about rejoicing with him how else I was just thinking the same thing for, for me as a woman and as a girl growing up I would meet envious of people that I thought had it all together whether that was in high school or as mothers or whatever but mm -hmm. to thank God that Okay, being thankful and giving thanks to God for the gifts that others have. 
You could also make a list, a gratitude list, and you could you could read it every morning, you know, after your morning prayers. Give me another good sin. Wondering thoughts. Okay, what what power of the soul does that relate to? Yeah, I think it's the noetic power. The noetic power is out of out of sorts. And how are we going to nurture? How are we going to nurture the virtue? Uh, nurture that power toward virtue. If we have wondering thoughts, it's maybe uh, because we don't really appreciate what's going on at the moment and what God is doing in the moment. So maybe we need to learn to become present in the moment and we need to pray. We need to practice communion with God. We need to practice the Jesus prayer. So that we begin to realize and come to realization that God is present at all times. And so if God is present, my thoughts can be with God and not be wondering, wandering around. Or if it's in church, you know, maybe we need to learn a little bit more about the liturgy or vespers or so we can our thoughts can be more engaged. And really, we should be praying, not thinking. So what's happening is that, well, when the noose is in the heart, um, the reasoning power is we're able to reason even, even while we're praying. Um, because the healthy news is praying sort of automatically. And we can be reasoning or doing a math problem and we're still praying and in communion with God. This is how, you know, we, we hear about the saints having continual prayer of the heart. But what you describe with wondering thoughts is not so much reasoning as it is um, our noose gets filled with thoughts and that's that's like a that's like a fallen condition the noose is not to be filled with thoughts the noose is to be filled with one thought and that is the thought of God um, and prayer so the, the back side of this worksheet has a list of the passions of soul and body according to St. John of Damascus. Yes? <laughs> okay. On, on that list <clears throat> from St. John of Damascus, um, under the passions of the body, it says 
One of the passions of the body is a general softness of life. I believe what that means is that we are always seeking after comfort. We're always seeking after comfort. And that relates to the desiring power of the soul. So what happens if we're always desiring after comfort? What happens? We, how can you take up your cross and follow Christ? Um, if I desire comfort, I'm going to eat all I want, anytime I want. I'm going to sleep in as long as I can every day. I'm going to, how else can I get comfort? I might, I mean there's all kinds of ways. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to go to church except very minimally because that's a, not just a discomfort, it's an inconvenience. Okay, if I'm seeking after comfort, I'm going to, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to make effort for my salvation. I'm not going to do anything that kind of rubs me wrong. And that's a problem because we need to do a lot of things that rub us wrong in this life. Life is difficult and the spiritual life is more difficult. So, do you understand? Um, one of the saints said, I think one of the saints of Optina, they said, you can't get to the kingdom of heaven on a feather bed. <laughs> Just like, because when we, when we have softness of life, we don't have any um, strength. We don't have any strength to like pursue God. We're just pampered. We're pampered. Right? And we're not going to be able to do the difficult thing, which is to follow Christ's commandments. And a lot of those commandments are difficult. We have to, we have to forgive the, our enemies. We have to love those who hate us. We have to... You see what I'm getting at? Not so sure. Um, well, so, and really, also, there's more to it. If, if we are pampered, who are we focusing on? We're focusing on ourselves all the time. Have you ever heard of a girl who's high maintenance? You're constantly serving her. Oh, now what can I do for you? Or is, is this the wrong pillow for you? Or, you know... I mean, how can you serve others like that? How can you even serve the poor? How could you, you know, how can you serve anyone? How could you fast? How could you pray like an extra five minutes? Or it's just not going to work. Nothing's going to work when it comes to that softness of life. We have the softest life probably in the history of mankind. The average American. Uh, we probably live better than most kings and queens of the past. Maybe not, maybe in some ways, maybe not in all ways. 
because they probably had slaves or servants. But, man, you know, I was in the Holy Land recently and we were taking a bus to all the destinations. And I remember thinking before we left, well, Israel is a very small geographical area. So it's probably just going to be, we're going to jot over here, we're going to jot over there. But, I mean, we were on the bus for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes driving, longer. And I was thinking, Jesus used to walk with his disciples to these places, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Or, and I thought, man, my back, my feet couldn't take it. So, anyway, in order for me to live, I have to have a chiropractor, an acupuncturist, a massage therapist, pharmacist. So, anyway, we're pretty soft. Um, I have a little section on overcoming temptation but I don't I don't think I I don't think we want to do it I think <laughs> I think that we've covered I think we've talked about most of those things um, we could use another sin. Sloth. Okay, sloth. Which power of the soul does that relate to? Excuse me? Do you think it's appetitive? Hmm? It's a, it probably actually is the insensitive power. So, because we don't have the get up and go. You know, people that are lazy, they don't have any... Well, it's true, it could be the desiring power. They don't desire to do anything. Okay, I'll give you that. Or it could be... It could be the fact that they, they have no um, zeal. They don't have any get up and go. Um, yeah, my mom hated those kind of people. She hated me when I was like that. Not hated. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. Um, get up and do something. Um, sometimes people who are depressed, there's usually anger underneath that, and an inappropriate anger. They need to be angry in a different way, probably. They might need a, a healthy anger to say, what am I doing, you know, hating myself and and I need to get to I need to get to work, working for the kingdom of God and you know, loving my neighbor. Why am I just self-absorbed like this? Easier said than done. Somebody had another sin? Worldly concerns. Where would that fit? And the powers of the soul. Desiring. Yeah, desiring. So, 
You remember the parable of the sower and the seed. A sower went out to sow and he, he dropped seeds on the path. He dropped seeds among the thorns and then he dropped seeds I'm forgetting who can tell me oh yeah in the rocks in the rocks well what about the ones in the thorns it says the 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 seed took root and it started to grow but the thorns choked it and it died and then the Lord, when he interprets the parable, he says the thorns are worldly concerns. I mean, think about it. Today in our life, in our day-to-day -day life, uh, getting up, taking care of the kids, going to work, running errands, finally getting home, um, and fixing the house, and. I mean, when do you have time to think about your soul? And we get caught up in just this incredible to-do list that we have. And it chokes, definitely chokes our spiritual life, right? So, um, how would we... How would we want to nurture our desiring power towards something else? How could we do that? Yeah, we could, we could be more firm with prayer times. Like we can have a prayer rule in the morning and the evening at least. And no matter what, we do our morning and evening prayers. Um, what else could we do to nurture? Try to go to a, a weekday service, perhaps. Yes. Good. Take advantage of, of the times that come to us that are, you can't sleep, or different times do come to us during the day. Yeah. That are vacant. Thank you. Yeah, be creative. Be creative with your time, right? Maybe when you're walking the dog, that can be a time for the Jesus prayer. Or, yeah. Okay, yeah, let's go to confession. Um, going to confession and confessing that we owe it, that we're just overly concerned about worldly things. Now, we have to take care of the things. We live in the world. We're not monastics. So we do have to take care of things. That's fine. That doesn't immediately mean that we're just concerned about worldly things. It depends on our attitude, you know, and, and our relationship with those things. Um, we may we may overwork. We may be a workaholic because we're avoiding, you know, something, or we don't want to. We don't want to take the time for relationships with our family or something like that. You had something. Um, I was going to say, 
constantly reminding ourselves that the things that we really chase after in life, whether it's like education or a job or a promotion, are fleeting in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we can we can start to become more aware of the fact that many of the things that we are doing are not going to last. They're not eternal. So, um, and we can practice the remembrance of death. Some people don't like that idea, but that's what the saints tell us. Remember, you're going to die. So what would you do if you're going to die today? I mean, or three days from now, or a week from now. What? What's really important? Yeah, so we could do that. We could cut out our trip to Starbucks. Um, just kidding. Picking, picking on Starbucks. <laughs> um, and what would be the opposite virtue of worldly, worldly concern? It's a good question. The opposite of worldly worldliness. Simplicity, maybe simplicity. Um, yeah, I, I I can't answer my question. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, detachment. Detachment is a virtue. Um, the, you know, saints like St. John of the Ladder say that we have to, even if we live in the world, we have to renounce the world. So, renunciation. Our life is not lived in order to collect a bunch of toys for this life. Our our life is in order to store up treasure in heaven, as the Lord says. So let's start thinking in terms of how can I get crowns for the kingdom of God? Um, what can I do to acquire virtue, to acquire rather God's grace? And we could just, you start making a list what can I do to acquire God's grace instead of pursuing just a worldly type of concern? I think also being more discerning about media. Being more discerning about media and music and everything that is in our lives that might be drawing us away from God. Yeah, very good. We, yeah, we haven't talked about all of that, but um, I hate to say it, putting down the phone and turning off the internet, Facebook, all of those things, yes, very good. Well, this is the idea, that's the idea. So. We have to think about these powers of the soul. 
Where is our weakness? Usually it's one particular power of the soul. Sometimes it feels like it's both desiring and insensitive. Um, sometimes we, if we're a very excitable person, we also tend to be very desirous, you know, or greedy or lustful. But oftentimes, really, if you look closely, it's one of these. One of these is the central problem. It's the source, and it tends to put its tentacles out to everything else. Um, and there's different medicines. There's different medicines. So, for the desiring power, um, Oftentimes that has to do with the body, lustfulness and things like that. Where, what do we do then with the body? We need to stay busy. We need to do prostrations. Um, prostrations are there to collect our bodily energy and, and reorient it. That's why we do prostrations and, and redirect our attention to God and humble ourselves so that our bodies are not our gods. Um, so there would be different also for desiring, like if we have a problem with our relationship with food, like every time we feel a negative emotion we run to the ice cream place or we want to eat food, then, well, we're going to have to practice moderation and fasting, right? Um, if we have hunger for money, we're, we're going to have to learn to restrain ourselves in buying things and shopping and we need to give to the poor. I've mentioned almsgiving, so we need to uh, do almsgiving. Lent is a great time. We should be saving money on the food that we're buying. If we skip a meal, we give the money to the poor. I'll tell you a great story about, um, actually it really has to do with the insensitive power. When we talk about healing the insensitive power, so there was a monk who had a terrible temper and he had a terrible ego that couldn't handle insults of any kind and he took everything like in very offensively if someone didn't talk politely to him he'd get offended and in the monastery it's I mean, it's a kind of, there's a lot of work going on and people don't have time for all kinds of niceties and he would get offended all the time. So his spiritual father said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Every time someone offends you, I want you to take a piece of money and give it to them and say, thank you, thank you. And so he said, okay. So, of course, next thing you know, within the hour, somebody says something or looks at him wrong, and he gets angry, 
He takes out a coin and he says, Thank you. <laughs> and he continues practicing this because he's in obedience to his spiritual father. And it goes on for quite a while, for months. And the abbot or the spiritual father says, Okay, you're done. I think you're good. You're cured. And so the monk has to go into town to run an errand. And he goes into town and he crosses, he goes through the gate of the city. And either by the providence of God or, well, it certainly was the providence of God, but I'm not sure who the man was, if he was someone who was uh, purposely tempting people or if he was a fool for Christ or what, but he's sitting there by the gate. The monk goes through the gate and immediately the man says, Hey, foolish one, you're so stupid. And the monk starts laughing and laughing and laughing. He can hardly contain himself. And the man says, What are you laughing about? And the monk says, I used to have to pay for that. <laughs> and so you can see the wisdom of the spiritual father because every time he felt offended and lowered, he, he had to give. He had to give something. He had to do something kind. He had to do something loving. And after a while, it was just like, ah, who cares? You know, here, take something. Take, take this. I'm happy. You know, I'm glad because you're helping to cure me. And that's how we see, that's how we're supposed to see the negative things that happen to us. And when our, when our enemies, if you will, we don't want to have enemies, but when those who can be considered enemies um, by what they do to us, when they do these things, we can say, thank God. He is my friend. He's my best friend. Because he's showing me, he's showing me my weakness. Like that I still become offended when my ego gets hurt. And so the saints say that these people are our best friends, our benefactors. They say, they say forget your friends. They're always doing nice things for you. That doesn't help you. Your enemies are the ones who are the real friends because they're exposing your sins and then you can repent. But we don't see it that way. Oftentimes. Most times, I would say. Uh, but this, see, this is the perspective of the saints. This is the wisdom, the spiritual wisdom of the church. When something difficult happens to us, we have to see it as from the hand of God. That God is allowing this for my purification. God is allowing this for some good reason. For my salvation. Like, you know, it's difficult. But that's how we have to see it. And when we see it that way, we can rejoice. And we can be glad and 
and we can like see it as a means for our repentance and especially if we if we don't receive it with gladness and we see it as why me lord why me then we know that we have to work on some things i saw a cartoon once it's that, that cartoon of the oh what's the guy's name he's got the hat with the horns you don't know that cartoon and the first Hagar. Hagar the first there were only two sections the first section had something bad happening to the guy and he was like why me he was looking up to God why me and then the next one God shouts back why not you so yeah why why not us and people, and then um, also we can, we can understand things that happen to us that are bad. We have to have the right healthy understanding of this. But we can, if we really can handle this, we can say, you know, it's because of my sins. It's not because he's a dummy or I don't like him or he's bad. Or It's because of my sins. That's why the Lord allowed this to happen. And in doing so, we don't hate ourselves. We just, just kind of have a sense of acceptance. And that it's just. Because if we really got what we deserved, we'd be in trouble. And so we can... We can be, we can receive that gracefully and just say, this is for my sins. It's God's helping me to, to um, be healed and to be purified by receiving this suffering. You know, a lot of people um, go through a lot of suffering before they die. And we have to understand the Orthodox perspective that you know, this suffering is really a blessing. It's given by God to purify us. Um, suffering is a means of purification. And the only other option would be like the story of Job, where God was just testing him. But either way, either way we can, we can accept that suffering with patience and with grace and with thanksgiving to God. We'd rather suffer here than after we die. And so some people go through all kinds of suffering with cancer. And um, There's a beautiful book, by the way, called Cancer, My Love. Paraskevi, um, do you have it? Okay, you have it. It's, a it's an amazing book. It's really an adventure. It's, you, you can't stop reading it. Uh, we had a question. Father Michael, how do you explain the relationship between like what you're talking about in the spiritual teachings of the church and then like what Jesus accomplished, like the gospel message, you know, the incarnation, his accomplished work, or, or maybe just like what grace is? I guess maybe that's another way to ask it in its relationship to this. I'm asking, I guess, for myself personally, like is... 
know, the great struggle it takes to be attentive or to extinguish evil desire or to um, have cur exercise courage, right? What is that relationship between, like, you know, how, how we know Jesus as the person and then, like, the aid that he gives us and then what these teachings are? Does my question make some sense? Um, I think so, but you can jump in if I'm not answering it. Uh, what Jesus did for us through his incarnation, death, and resurrection and ascension is to is to purify our nature, to reinvigorate our human nature, to make it possible to be released from the passions and sin, and to overcome, ultimately to overcome death. Um, to overcome sin and death. So, St. Nicholas Cavasilas, he has kind of a short answer of the shortest Orthodox answer I've seen for how Jesus' work has saved us. He said, by his incarnation, he healed our nature. By his death, he healed sin. And by his resurrection, he heals death. He overcomes death. By his incarnation, he overcomes nature. By his cross, he overcomes sin. By his resurrection, he overcomes death. But what Jesus did, we have to enter into. We have to join ourselves to him. And in order to join ourselves to him, we have to, we have to be healed. Our nature has to be healed. Our nature has to overcome sin. And therefore will overcome death. If I can put it that way. So we don't believe in this idea of just, I accept Jesus as my personal savior and therefore I'm saved. And there's no organic change in us. There's nothing really asked of us except for something abstract called faith, which is typically just a belief, a, an abstract idea that I have. Um, sometimes those, those kind of Christian philosoph uh, philosophies, they, they're just ideaism. It's just ideas. It's not reality. It has little to do with the reality. It's just we're saved by an idea. An idea that I have that I'm saved because um, I believe in Jesus. In the Orthodox understanding, salvation is organic. It's a real um, participation in the life of God. And so, in order, to, in order to participate in God, we have, to, we have to be opened up to His grace because we're joined to God by His grace or by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But you can't receive grace if 
you're closed to it. If your way of life closes you off to grace, and there are ways of life, and there are behaviors, and there are attitudes, and so forth, that close us off to the grace of God. Those are all the sins and the passions and all of those things close us off to the grace of God. It makes us unable to actually receive the grace of God. And according to the Bible, what are we saved by? I need to hear it more. Yeah, we're saved by grace. We're saved... Uh, by grace you are saved through faith. Through faith. So we're saved by grace. If we don't have the grace of God, we can't be saved. We receive the grace of God by opening ourselves up to the grace of God, which allows God to, to give us that grace. And then we're, we're joined to God and we, we keep that grace through faith. We practice the faith, not just a belief, a mental belief that we have. It's the whole life of faith. It's a life of faith. It's a life that by faith opens us up to grace. I have to read my book again on the chapter on grace because I'm not um, expressing it as well as I would like to, but I use an analogy, I actually borrowed this from someone else, but if you want to get a suntan, you, you have to do something. I, you'd have to go outside, right? But first, you're probably going to have to take off some clothes. And so I have to, I have to open myself to grace. Um, the sun, the sun, the energy of the sun is going to give me a suntan. It's actually going to interact with the chemicals in my body to create a suntan. And grace is no different than that. Grace is the, the divine, uncreated energies of God. And in order to get those uncreated energies of God, I have to put myself in a position to receive them. And this is what the Christian life is. This is what the life of faith is. It's putting yourself in a position, in a position to receive God's uncreated grace. By grace you are saved. We're saved by the uncreated energies of God. And the, because the uncreated energies of God join us to God. They, they penetrate us. That's what deification is. It's the interpenetration of God's grace in our soul and body. And um, that's what salvation is. It's not something abstract. It's organic. That's why, the, again, I've said before, sometimes the bodies of the saints don't decompose as a sign of the grace that is in their body, that was also in their soul. Their, their bones or their bodies are fragrant with a beautiful fragrance of the Holy Spirit because their bodies were a vessel for 
grace, the vessel of the Holy Spirit. Just like if you take a bottle of perfume and you pour the perfume out, like that would be like the soul has left the body, but you smell the jar and it still smells like the perfume. Does that get to what you're talking about? So when we do the commandments of God, we're actually participating in his life. St. Maximus the Confessor says that the commandments of Christ, within the commandments of Christ, is Christ himself. So when we, when we do the commandments of Christ, we find Christ actually um, comes to us. He reveals himself. He comes into us. So that's why we have to practice the commandments of Christ. Not as some kind of just a moral code, you know, be nice to others and open the door for them when they go out of the door because we are all good, nice Americans. It's not a moral code. Don't smoke, don't drink, and don't dance, and you'll go to heaven after you die. No, it's, it's participation in the kingdom of God now by being joined to the body of Christ, his flesh, which is the church, which is filled with his divine energies, and then it's not enough to be joined to the church because you can officially be joined to the church, but you're, the way you're living either closes you off or limits you to having access to the grace that's in Jesus' body. So you have to open up your life to his divine grace, which is accessible through the church. And you have to do that with your whole lifestyle. And so it's very organic. There's a reason it's called the body of Christ, the church. And it's, there's a reason Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you're connected to me, you're going to have salvation. It's an organic, um, it's an organic image. All the images of the church are, are organic and relational. The bride of Christ and Christ the bridegroom. A marital relationship. So it's, it's all very um, organic and, and this is, this is what, this is the, the real, you know, understanding of the church and salvation. Does that, does that ring true to you? Other questions? Hello? Um, so when you had mentioned about the gluttony thing, uh, when people mm -hmm. are depressed, they choose to eat, and that's the sin. For those who, um, for me, when I'm stressed, I, I don't eat. Is there sin in oh. refraining from eating, or is that classified under fasting? Wow, that's a good question. Well, um, here I think, I believe that when, oftentimes when we have anxiety, 
That's what causes us to not want to eat. So it's not, in this case, in that case, it's not a desire that's coming out of love for God that I want to fast. I want to not eat as a way of giving myself to God, as a way of turning my energies to God because I desire Him and I love Him. That's what fasting should be. But in the case of not eating because we're anxious, we're actually, it's not the not eating that's the sin most of all, it's the anxiety. And when I use the word sin, remember that the word in Greek means to miss, to miss the target. It doesn't mean you've done something immoral. It just means you're missing the target, which is union with God. And when we're taken over by anxiety, it's a sign that at some level we're not giving ourselves over to God in faith and trusting God. So the real sin is probably in anxiety, which is, you know, it's a difficult, terrible condition, some, depending on how bad it is. But I do think that it involves, it's, it's bound up in sin. And then it can be a sin to mistreat yourself if you're not eating because because of an, somehow a, a, a hatred, indirect hatred for yourself. You know, God doesn't want us to not eat because of that. He wants us to not eat because we desire Him more than anything. And He is our food. Um, so, does that, does that help a little bit? Good question. Huh. Oh, it's just been a it's been a joy and a treat to be with you, and um, I'm really appreciative of your hospitality and and mostly your love and service for God, for Christ's Church, and um, I like to see I love to see the the harmony and. And that you have with each other and your love for the faith. Thank you very much, and Father thank Michael. Thank you for that. Yeah.